From ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah, welcome to the LabMind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Wednesday, the 10th of November, 2021. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Archana Agrawal from the University of Utah and ARUP Laboratories. And we'll be talking today about using genetic analysis to solve undiagnosed hemolytic anemias. Dr. Agarwal is Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Utah. She's also the Medical Director for ARUP's Special Hematology Laboratory, where she has a special focus on red cell disorders. She received medical degrees from both Assam Medical College and Delhi University in India, did postdoctoral research at the University of Iowa. I first met her when she was a pathology resident here at the University of Utah doing anatomic and clinical pathology. She stayed on to complete fellowships in both hematopathology and molecular genetics and is now on faculty. So Dr. Agarwal, welcome to LabMind. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. To start off our conversation, what got you interested in this topic? I mean, genetics of hemolytic anemias sounds like a fairly focused topic. What got you interested in this? Yeah, you're right. It's kind of a niche and esoteric kind of topic. So my area of expertise is hematopathology, and I'm also board certified in molecular genetic pathology. I've always been interested in red blood cell related disorders and hemolytic anemia specifically, and also the consequences of hemolytic anemia in neonates. So I decided to combine my training in heme and genetic pathology and basically try to answer some of the unexplained etiologies of hemolytic anemias. When I started working here in early 2010, before that, in 2009, there was a paper published from Stanford regarding these neonates with hyperbilirubinemia and This was a registry where they had about 125 patients and about 50% of the patients did not have any clue. So they were called idiopathic. And later on in 2012, our local group, Intermountain Group, Dr. Kristen Chun, with whom I collaborated a lot later on, he published a report of 32 patients where they couldn't find any etiologies in like 60% of their patients. So this was very intriguing to me that about 50 to 60% of these neonates with hyperbilirubinemia and hemolytic anemia didn't really have any explained etiologies per se. And that's how we started And also at that time, 2010 or 2012, NGS was also becoming mainstream. So we started looking at some of these patient samples and just looking at few genes. We started at looking like five or six genes at that time. And with like really smaller panel also, we could find novel mutations in some of these samples. So that's how I got started. What fraction of hyperbilirubinemia is medically problematic in the sense of needing therapy? That's a great question. I would say the really extreme level of hyperbilirubinemia, mild to moderate level of hyperbilirubinemia happen quite often, and those are easily managed by phototherapy. But the extreme level of hyperbilirubinemia are moderately extreme. Those are rare. But even though they're extremely rare or rare, the consequences on the neonates of those extreme hyperbilirubinemia are debilitating. These patients with extreme hyperbilirubinemia, the bilirubin can pass through blood-brain barrier and can basically impact the central nervous system. And these patients end up with 
debilitating neurological dysfunction all their life. And there have been recent literature also supporting that maybe mild to moderate level could also have some neurological dysfunction. It might not be really at the extreme level, which we call kernicterus, but they could have some level of neurological dysfunction. So yes, it is rare. I would say less than 0.1% if I have to guess the number as such, but the impact is really debilitating. That's what kind of interests the clinicians and also the laboratory people to diagnose these patients accurately. The case series that you were talking about where half of these newborns were basically labeled idiopathic, were those moderate, severe? Yeah, that's a great point. All these patients I'm talking about, the registry patient and the intermountain group patient, they were moderate to severe form of hyperbilirubinemia. These patients were kind of sampled or collected in a period, I would say three to four year period. So yes, I mean, they were kind of relatively rare per se. And I can imagine in that setting that most of the attention is going to the therapy, trying to prevent the neurologic yeah, injury. Exactly. And also one other point I need to mention, these registry and our local group, these were done before the NGS period. So none of these patients had molecular diagnosis. And one of the problem with the molecular diagnosis with these patients are the genes. I mean, these are heterogeneous kind of disorders. And the spectrin genes, the red blood cell membrane-related genes, they're huge. They're really big. And the mutations are all over the genes. So it's practically impossible if we look at the conventional route to do Sanger sequencing. It's just not going to work. So that might be one of the reasons that these remain kind of idiopathic, I think. Yeah, when I think of my own medical student learning on all of this stuff, there was a small handful of genetic disorders. You know, you got sickle cell, you've got G6PD, then you've got the thalassemias, which yeah. are challenging for students to, <laughs> to learn. <laughs> That's remember. The, yeah, the genetics of those get, get confusing. <laughs> but that was basically the collection of diseases. The ones that you're talking about that didn't fit in those categories, how closely related were they? Were they completely different types of disorders? So the G6PD and sickle cell is still part of hemolytic anemia, but we have known about those disorders, as you mentioned, for a long time. And there are well-established tests, biochemical tests, basically enzyme-level tests to detect those. I'm mostly talking about red blood cell-related membrane defects like hereditary spherocytosis or the spectrum of disorders kind of related to hereditary spherocytosis, but not exactly those. There are different types, which I would say we recognized some of those in early 1990s or 95 or 97. There are a lot of research went into red blood cell related disorders. And that's how we came to know about many of those disorders. The G6PD and the enzyme levels and sickle cell are still part of these, but then there are a lot of disorders which are beyond those disorders. And those are the ones which remain undiagnosed, I think. We started off here talking about newborns and the high bilirubin levels that need to be managed in the newborn. But if they're going undiagnosed, how many of these show up later in adulthood as some sort of diagnostic workup? So in the neonates, because some of these kind of liver and the, as I mentioned, the CNS, they're still not functional. So it causes severe hemolysis as well as neonatal hyperbilirubinemia. Those could have, which we talked about, the consequences. 
But later on in their life, in like adulthood or later, they would usually present with mild hemolytic, well-compensated hemolytic anemia and might not have a huge clinical impact as such, but they could create diagnostic conundrum because the differential diagnosis of mild hemolytic anemia is huge. There are a lot of acquired forms, there are a lot of hereditary forms. So if they remain undiagnosed, it can create a lot of issues with the diagnosis later on. Yeah, I wonder if it ever creates issues with going broader than hemolytic anemias, but the workup of mild anemia is potentially really broad. Do you think that some of these might be complicating, you know, an initial workup of say a mild anemia in a in an older adult? That's absolutely right. And that's a really good point you raised. We have seen a lot of patients in their 40s, 50s, or 60s where they would present with mild hemolytic anemia or mild anemia as such. And the differential at that age is much broader. Cancer comes to play a big role in that age group, like colon cancer or some of the kind of hematological cancer like myelodysplastic syndrome, which would present with mild anemia. So if these hereditary, as I mentioned, the spherocytosis or some of the enzyme disorders remain undiagnosed, these patients undergo expensive, lot of different testings, lot of different levels of testing, including colonoscopy and the scans to rule out some of the other kind of relatively common disorders, not common per se, but still dangerous disorders in that age group. I've seen a lot of patients where the patients will undergo multiple level of testing and then will look at the peripheral smear or CBC and it would look more like thalassemia or it would look like HS and the biochemical testing would confirm that. So yeah, making a diagnosis early on helps a lot, even though the clinically it might not impact or it might not change the prognosis per se, but it can have a huge impact overall. I've heard it said that rare diseases are individually rare, but they're not collectively all that rare. That's a very good point, yes. There's just so much heterogeneity out there in our biology. And I do think that the rare diseases are rare because many of them remain undiagnosed. We don't know. We see so many patients on a regular day-to-day basis of anemia, just like myelanemia, and the clinicians are trying to figure out what's causing this anemia. So many of them remain undiagnosed. If you're not really thinking about these so-called rare disease, they would remain rare as such. That's really interesting to think about. Maybe we're all running around with a mild hemolytic anemia. Some kind of underlying disorder, yeah. probably true that most people have at least one clinically relevant, undiagnosable disorder at any given point. Yeah, I think so. I agree with that. Okay, so let's talk about the testing a little bit. I'm not a geneticist, so I want to ask you a really naive-sounding question so you can correct my misimpressions. With next-gen sequencing, this ability to do massive sequencing of the whole exome or maybe even the whole genome, I think there's this idea out there, and maybe this has been promoted by some of the consumer genetics companies, but I think there's an idea out there that why don't we just do a full genome sequencing on everyone at birth? and then answer all the possible genetic questions right then so that we never have any of these problems. What's a better way to think about genetic testing, even in the next-gen sequencing era, where you can do large volumes of sequencing? That's a really good point. And we have been kind of discussing and talking about these for a long time. 
which one is better to do a full exon or full genome sequencing or do a targeted analysis as such? Personally, I do think that both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. If we know the phenotype or we, if we know what kind of disorder we are looking for, it's much better to do a targeted analysis because the targeted analysis obviously is cost effective for sure, first of all, to start with. And for insurance purposes, it works much better. But at the same time, the coverage, especially in if we are talking about solid tumor, the or kind of somatic mutation as such, the coverage matters a lot because better the coverage will have much higher chances of detecting rare mutations. And it's so much easier and cost effective to do a much kind of in-depth coverage for a smaller gene panel. So that's, in my mind, one of the bigger advantages. But personally, the biggest advantage I see from my day-to-day kind of looking at these panels is the analysis part. So it's much easier to analyze a smaller panel, much easier to do a focused approach. If we are looking at like a 400 gene panel, it's practically not possible to look at each and every gene in depth and look at all these variant of unknown significance. So higher the panel, higher the chances of finding all these variant of unknown significance, which we really have no idea how to deal with it. Even with smaller panel, with the hemolytic anemia panel, which is a 28 gene panel, we see variant of unknown significance, like two or three variant of unknown significance on every case. It's difficult. Even with the, all the biochemical testings, it becomes difficult to basically recategorize them. Classification is a challenge. Practically, it's much easier for us to do a smaller panel, a focused approach to give a kind of accurate answer to the clinician or the patient per se. So a few years ago, a lot of people were talking about the $1,000 genome and how the costs of sequencing had come down, but they were only talking about the wet chemistry part of it. So the analysis part of it, the professional investigation of it is much larger in terms of cost and effort and everything else than actually getting the G's and C's and A's and T's and stuff. In day-to-day kind of basis, that's the most important part because that's what's going to answer the clinician or the patient. Even with a smaller panel, we see variant of unknown significance, and we spend like humongous amount of time basically going through the literature, trying to figure out what this gene means, what this variant would mean. And if we are basically looking at like a larger panel or a whole exon sequencing, it's is time consuming, not cost effective. Unless we are trying to basically figure out something, the phenotype is like really broader and we really don't know what kind of gene to look for. So in those scenarios, it would be perfect to do a whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing. If we have a kind of more or less idea what genes are impacting this kind of phenotype, it's much better to do a targeted analysis. So I'm guessing most of the listeners will be familiar with the term variant of unknown significance. But just in case there are some who aren't, could you define that? Absolutely. So variant of unknown significance would mean that it's not a common variant. So it's not seen commonly in normal population. It's a variant, it's a change in the base pair, but the variant, we don't know the significance. So it's in a simplified term, we don't know what does that mutation or change in amino acid mean to the patient per se. So it could be pathogenic, 
or it might be completely kind of benign. So we really don't know the significance of that variant. And it sounds like this is where a lot of the work goes in the analysis. You might have a patient with legitimate symptoms and you find one or two variants that there's nothing in the literature that links those variants to the disease. So what kinds of things do you do to investigate that? So there are a lot of things which go into analyzing a variant of significance and trying to figure out what would that mean. The foremost important is the clinical presentation that has a big role. What was the phenotype of the patient? And then also some kind of in vitro, like a biochemical assay. Like if a patient has a peripheral smear evaluation and we are seeing a lot of spherocytes for like a hereditary spherocytosis patients, that would basically support a diagnosis of hereditary spherocytosis. Or if a biochemical testing is positive, like some of the osmotic fragility and some of the other testing which we do. So it's always recommended, and that's what we recommend, to do some kind of a biochemical testing as well as peripheral smear evaluation and then do a genetic testing. Genetic testing in itself is not going to answer the question. So to answer your question, we look at the clinical phenotype of the patient, the CBC, peripheral smear evaluation, and some of the biochemical testing. And also family history plays a big role since these are germline hereditary disorders. So yes, we look at all of these different kinds of findings to come up to a conclusion. And even after looking at all of these, there would be variants where we have no idea what to do with. So in terms of the diagnostic yield on these efforts, when you do this focused genetic testing on patients with undiagnosed or previously undiagnosed hemolytic anemias, roughly what proportion are you able to identify a likely cause? It's variable. From our panel, I would say anywhere from 40 to 60%. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. I would say average would be 50-60% of the time we can have a clear answer or maybe somewhat clear answer of the patient's phenotype, or we can explain some of the hemolytic process going on. So I think that's pretty amazing that the percentage is that high. The NIH has a whole division that pursues mystery diseases, and I know they do a lot of sequencing. And my memory is that they find a genetic cause in a relatively small fraction of those cases, that most of those cases remain undiagnosed. So your yield for the hemolytic anemia seems higher than that. It's certainly higher than a lot of solid tumor somatic testing that goes on in oncology, where the vast majority of that does not end up changing therapy. Any ideas why you're getting such a high success rate? Is it because you had such a well-designed focus panel to begin with? what it is. It's a well-defined, focused, smaller panel, kind of dedicated to one particular kind of area of interest. So we are not looking at a lot of different gene panels with a lot of clinical presentations. It's a very well-focused and well-designed panel. And also, I mean, it's a reference laboratory setup. So we are getting patients who have had multiple testing done in previously and they didn't have the answer. So that could be also the reason we are getting these patients well-established hemolytic anemia, unexplained hemolytic anemia. It's a combination of a focus panel and the kind of patient population we are getting. 
as you do your week-to-week pathology practice in hematopathology, and I know you look at cases that are much broader than hemolytic anemias, are there other areas in hematology or hematopathology that you're particularly interested in trying a genetic approach or you think that someone else ought to be interested in investigating the genetics? So the hematopathology, I guess, I would divide into two different parts, neoplastic and non-neoplastic. Regarding the neoplastic part, like myeloid leukemias, acute myeloid leukemias and myelodysplastic syndrome, we have been doing NGS for a long time. It's been almost five, six years. And those have been well-established for therapy purposes and also for the prognostic purposes because there have been a lot of advancement in the targeted approach of leukemias. I think we are mostly interested right now in the non-neoplastic part. So hemolytic anemia would be kind of a germline setup. And then there have been a lot of interest now with the congenital thrombocytopenia, so decrease in platelets per se. And there are a lot of germline etiologies of congenital thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, like hereditary form of thrombosis. So we have been working in close collaboration with our COAD colleagues and bringing up some of these germline testing for thrombosis or thrombophilia testing or thrombocytopenia testing. So those are in pipeline and should be available in a year or so. What about all the immune-mediated hemolytic anemias, thrombocytopenias? Are there genetic components to those? Great question. So the immune-mediated, again, could be two different types, right? Acquired forms are much more commoner. And obviously, those do not have any kind of germline etiologies. But non-acquired hereditary form, like acquired atypical HUS comes to my mind, hemolytic uremic syndrome, where you can have germline kind of predispositions of some of these atypical HUS form. And we are also kind of talking about bringing NGS testing for some of those disorders. And some of the other laboratories, they do offer it. So closing question, when you wake up in the morning and you come into work, What gets you excited? I really like the interaction with my peer, my colleagues, as well as my interaction with my trainees. As you mentioned earlier, this is kind of an esoteric, rarer disorder. So when I teach them or when I basically go over some interesting cases with my fellows or trainees and they understand some of these aspects, that gives me a really great sense of accomplishment as such. And frankly, it's the interaction with my peer and the trainees is what keeps me going. The IDP is a great place. I mean, it's a clinical laboratory, but as well as academic center. So we do a lot of teaching. It gives really a great sense of accomplishment when these trainees get some of what I'm trying to make sense of. Yeah, I sometimes wonder why any physician would want to practice outside of academic medicine, because between the learning aspects and the collegial, and like you say, being around trainees, residents, sometimes medical students, certainly fellows, is an experience that can be really rewarding. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. I was talking to one of my fellow yesterday and went over one of the interesting cases. And when he understood some of these aspects of it, it was so rewarding. Trust me, it was really nice to see him understanding the aspect, some of these esoteric, rarer kind of things. Dr. Harchana Agarwal, thank you so much for being on LabMind today and sharing some of your expertise, but also your experiences and insights into this important area of testing. Thanks for having me, and it was great chatting with you regarding some of these things which interest me. 
LabMind is sponsored by ARUP Laboratories, a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. Our producer is Sheree Peterson with audio engineering by Claudia Escobar. You can find other LabMind episodes at arup.utah.edu, along with an extensive video lecture library providing free CME and CE credits for medical and laboratory professionals. You can also subscribe to LabMind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your other favorite podcast app. If you do access it on an app, I would encourage you to leave a rating and review in order to help others find the podcast. 